Hello and welcome to the World Nuclear News Podcast. I'm Alex Hunt. This month we have reports on nuclear energy developments in India and the International Energy Agency's 2024 ministerial meeting and 50th anniversary event which recognised nuclear as one technology for achieving energy security and decarbonisation. But the main bulk of this edition is an interview with the founder and CEO of NextGen Energy, Lee Courier, who outlines the scale of the uranium mining company's plans. When we discovered this back in 2011 and started the company, I was always been such a strong advocate for nuclear energy worldwide, and, and I knew that the world was devoid of any real A-grade uranium mining projects. And look, the home of them is in Saskatchewan, and we went to another part of the, the base and that they hadn't really been explored, and people said, well, why are you going out there? It's not where all the producing mines are. And we took the simple view that, why is the geology any different? And actually, we proved that the geology was way better in terms of what we discovered. More from Lee later. But now here's Claire Maiden with an update on nuclear energy developments in India. India's a big country and nuclear power plays a big part in its future plans, which feature the fleet-wise rollout of multiple Indian-designed and built 700-megawatt pressurised heavy water reactors. And in February, with the grid connection of the second Indian-designed and built 700-megawatt pressurised heavy water reactor at Kakrapar, we can see those plans starting to come together. Now, India's had nuclear power plants for a long time. Nuclear Power Corporation of India Limited's first pressurised heavy water reactor was built in collaboration with Atomic Energy of Canada Limited and entered commercial operation in 1972. And India went on to design and develop its own 220-megawatt PHWRs and it also built two 540-megawatt PHWRs at Tarapur. But the plans for future indigenous PHWR reactors are for 700-megawatt units. Kakrapar 3 and 4 are the first two of that iteration. Construction of both units formally began in late 2010, and Kakrapar 3 achieved first criticality in July 2020. It was connected to the grid the following January, although it wasn't formally declared in commercial operation until July last year. And now Kakrapar 4 has also been connected to the grid after reaching first criticality in mid-December. So the occasion was marked by a visit to the plant in Gujarat, by Prime Minister Narendra Modi in February, when he formally dedicated the plants to the nation. While two further 700 megawatt units are already under construction at the Rajasthan nuclear power plant, India has plans to build many more of these units in what it calls fleet mode. Site works are already underway for the construction of two units at Gorakhpur in Haryana, and a further 10 units at four sites have got administrative approval, Now, although they're approved for construction, there's no clear idea of when work on those plants might start. But alongside the celebrations at Kakrapar, there have been press reports recently suggesting that India is making moves to invite private firms to invest in its nuclear energy sector. Talks are reportedly going ahead with several companies to secure total investments worth billions of dollars to help build new nuclear capacity. Indian law means that private companies aren't allowed to own or operate nuclear power plants in India, but it's being suggested that a hybrid plan, with plants built and operated by NPCIL and the investing companies earning revenue from electricity sales from the plants, that this could be possible under current legislation, but it would need approval by the Department of Atomic Energy. The role of nuclear energy in reducing carbon emissions is being increasingly accepted internationally, such as at the COP28 summit in December. 
Here's Warwick Pipe reporting on some more recognition in February. Hi Alex. Yes, the International Energy Agency has said it expects global nuclear power generation to grow by almost 3% annually, on average, between now and 2026, reaching a new record high by 2025. This forecast was given in the IEA's Electricity 2024 report, which provides forecasts for electricity demand, supply and CO2 emissions up to 2026. The IEA said that while global growth in electricity demand eased slightly to 2.2% in 2023, it is projected to accelerate to an average of 3.4% from 2024 to 2026. However, record-setting electricity generation from low-emission sources, including nuclear power, should reduce the role of fossil fuels. Nuclear power generation, it says, is forecast in 2025 to exceed the previous record set in 2021. Now, this is due to increased output from French reactors, several plants in Japan being restarted, and new reactors entering commercial operation around the world, including in China, India, South Korea and Europe. An additional 29 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity is expected to come online globally by 2026, with the IEA expecting global nuclear generation to be almost 10% higher in 2026 compared with 2023. In the longer term, in its latest World Energy Outlook, released last October, the IEA said it expected global nuclear generating capacity to increase from 417 gigawatts in 2022 to 620 gigawatts in 2050, in a scenario based on existing energy policies. In this scenario, global nuclear generation increases from 2,682 terawatt hours in 2022 to 4,353 terawatt hours in 2050, while its share of total energy production decreases from 9% to 8% over the same period. However, with more lifetime extensions and construction of reactors in newcomer countries, global nuclear generating capacity in the announced pledges scenario increases to 770 gigawatts in 2050, with nuclear output doubling to 5,301 terawatt-hours. The net-zero emissions by 2050 scenario sees nuclear generating capacity reaching 916 gigawatts by 2050, with a production of 6,015 terawatt-hours. At its 2024 ministerial meeting held in Paris in mid-February, IEA member countries released a joint communique recognising nuclear as one technology for achieving energy security and decarbonisation. This communique said, and I'll quote, those countries that opt to use nuclear energy will support its use, recognise its potential as a clean energy source that can reduce dependence on fossil fuels to address the climate crisis and improve global energy security. These countries recognise nuclear energy as a source of baseload power, providing grid stability and flexibility and optimising use of grid capacity, while other countries choose other options to achieve the same goals. Now this is significant as previous ministerial meeting communiques have either not mentioned nuclear power or have only included it in a list of energy sources used, whereas the latest one has specifically noted nuclear's advantages. Speaking at the ministerial meeting's closing press conference, IEA Executive Director Fatih Birol had this to say about the statement. There are many other first times, and one of them is uh, Minister Lesker just mentioned, for the first time there was a full paragraph 
and the recognition of uh, nuclear power to address the energy security and climate change issues. In our communicate, it is clear that it is up to the countries to pick up nuclear or not. It is uh, optional. There is no push for the countries to make use of nuclear. If the countries opt to use uh, nuclear power, we have uh, highlighted the benefits of that. And uh, it is up to countries definitely to make their own uh, strategies. This support for nuclear energy follows a ministerial declaration signed by 22 countries, released at the UN's COP28 climate change conference in Dubai in early December, which recognised the need for a tripling of nuclear energy capacity to achieve net zero by or around 2050. I'm joined now by my colleague Claire Maiden for this next interview with Lee Courier, founder, CEO and president of NextGen Energy Limited. Hello, Lee. Many thanks for joining us. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the detail of our discussion, can we start with a brief overview of your background? Sure. Well, originally, or at the start of my career, I was a chartered accountant and I, uh, I went into mining in 2002 as the chief financial officer of a, a small uranium development company called Southern Cross Resources, which was about halfway through feasibility and permitting of the Honeymoon Uranium Project, which is about to go into production with Boss Energy. After a uh, period in, in early 2002, we uh, merged with uh, a place to form SXA Uranium One which went on to become the second largest uranium producer in the world at the time. I left shortly thereafter, went to First Reserve International in London, where I looked at every uranium project around the world from a technical, economic and sovereign profile perspective. And then in early 2011, I saw the opportunity to start uh, NextGen and I went and uh, acquired a number of properties in the Athabasca Basin and then on Valentine's Day 2014, uh, it cut short a lunch with my wife. I got the news that we discovered the Aero uh, deposit and yeah, the, the rest is, a, is history, as they say. A memorable day. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. So at school, at university, your studies led to being an accountant rather than a physicist or anything directly related to the nuclear field. Yeah, that, that's right. I always had a real fascination with mining, though. I think growing up in Australia, that just comes part of the course. And given you know what mining does for a population, both economically but also standard of living, it was always fascinating and large sums of money and hopefully also large profits, large, large losses. Hopefully get involved with something with large profits. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I used my accounting background to as the entry and as a chief financial officer. So you did what a lot of people only ever dream of doing, taking the leap and going into business for yourself. What motivated you to take that step? Yeah, I had a lot of people question it, considering you know, I was working at First Reserve, which was the world's largest private equity firm in the energy sector at the time. And it looked a fantastic job. But I, I also had the desire also to always start my own business one day and I had very strong support from my wife to do that and she also you know, moved halfway around the world with our three kids to do it. You know, I, I always felt I wanted to do something like that and in mining especially and I've been fortunate enough to have had the support to do that and I'm incredibly grateful for that. 
And uh, I certainly encourage my own kids as well to to pursue what they want to do in their lives, no matter how sensible it uh, or unsensible it may sound at the time. I'm sure it will all work out eventually. So a big move from Australia to Canada, where Next Gen Energy is based. For those who aren't familiar with Next Gen Energy, can you give us an overview about it and its 13-year history? Yes. So founded in, in 2011, we acquired a number of exploration properties in the Athabasca Basin in northern Saskatchewan, the Athabasca Basin. The deposits there on average are 100 times the grade of the current grade of world production. So you're, you're looking for very high-grade deposits in the Athabasca Basin that However, they're, they're very difficult to find. We we're very fortunate after basically looking at a 30-year history of exploration in the area and why, and then applying some new geophysical surveys over the, the land package. We targeted a number of zones in that southwestern side of the basin. And on our 21st drill hole on the property, but the very first drill hole on this particular target, we, we hit mineralization. It wasn't until... You know, mid-2014, about six months later after that discovery hole, that we then hit a intercept, which at the time was about the fourth best hole in uranium exploration history from a width times grade perspective. That hole no longer is in the top 20. The other holes are all hosted by the Arrow Discovery. And at that time, we knew we had something incredibly significant, uh, just how significant you know, it was to be defined, but we knew it was one of the world's best deposits and it certainly has turned into the world's best deposit from a, a grade size and also technical environmental setting. And so at that time, we said, I said to the team, this is a fantastic deposit, but we're going to judge ourselves on how well we optimise it. And that's in terms of, you know, the cost efficiency and the time efficiency, but also understanding all the key stakeholders that will be impacted by the project and that was local communities, government, the population of Saskatchewan and, and Canada and going beyond that because our the, the nuclear fuel, the uranium that we will produce will have a worldwide consequence. It's upon us to, to do it very, very well. And so the people that you see at Next Gen today are those ones who had the courage to take on that commitment and that goal and and everything we've done to date has, in a lot of respects, set new standards for the industry. And that's in cost and, and time efficiency, the application of innovative exploration and definition techniques. Environmentally, we have taken the decision to develop underground tailings facilities, which has been very warmly received by the local communities and the government. And then also socially, we're very well recognised by the Canadian mining industry for leading the world for any Canadian company in, in the social and environmental performance of our company. And just a few little things, we, we went and introduced ourselves prior to the first exploration hole. Rightly so, received some scepticism. Who's uh, this guy halfway from around the world? Yeah, we've heard this before. And so I just said, look, judge us on our actions, not our words, and and uh, they did. And we have a fantastic partnership with the local communities in successfully developing this project. And that covers a whole range of things, not just, you know, contracting-wise and maximising local businesses and, and employment, but also 
community programs and also absolute transparency with the environmental and the development of the project. And so we have 100% support from local communities and we're looking forward to moving forward with the local communities in the successful development of the project. Is there a ballpark figure for how long, sort of from Valentine's Day 2014, it will take to get to production? Yeah, it's a really good question, Alex, because mining, it, it, it does take many years and we're about to hit actually the 10-year anniversary in only about five days from now from that discovery hole. And we have received our provincial environmental approval November 8th of last year. And we're very confident that uh, we'll see the federal permit in the very near future. Timeline on construction is estimated to be 42 months from that point in time. So, look, if we were to receive the federal permit this year in 2024, which we are very confident we will, well, there's no reason why we can't, frankly. Uh, We've fulfilled every obligation. You would expect production at the end of 2027, early 2028. So from discovery through to production, you're looking around 14, 15 years. And we were very unique that no deposit had been for over 100 million pounds had been developed as quickly as this one or received permitting approval as quickly as this one. So, so Lee, I was going to actually go back to that a little bit because I, I think you've had some quite innovative approaches to the licensing and permitting side of things, haven't you? Would you like to talk a little bit about that and your experiences there? Because I think you've done it slightly differently to probably more mining activities that gone in the past. You've been working with the different regulatory bodies at the same time in parallel is that right yeah that that's right claire and so look our, our approach has been first of all understanding what is required to be permitted so even before we submitted our original project description we put a lot of work into understanding the permitting process in canada i'd had some experience in in, in south australia and and so had learned a lot of lessons through that but first of all, we, we just had a, a very solid understanding of what was required to be permitted and so and the level of validation required around the technical, the environmental and the social aspects of environmental approval. And we ran that process provincially in Saskatchewan in parallel to the federal approval process in Canada because you need two. So we just ran them in parallel. The fact is the environmental impact study is primarily the same document, both provincially and federally, and there's licensing as well as the environmental approval, which we have ran in parallel. And I I think from a practical point of view, we have a very technically, environmentally, a very straightforward, simple mind. So we've had that benefit of having well-understood all body it's incredibly hard rock and so it's very easy to extract and it has a very clean metal edge as well so we don't have deleterious uh, metals once we get the ore to surface to then deal with so it has been innovative in that sense that we've ran a few a number of streams in parallel and have received validation around it with the uh, granting of the provincial approval and we're confident we're about to receive that federally as well the uranium market has been a very lively one over the last year or two, to say the least. What's your assessment of the current situation and what impact is it having on NextGen and the uranium industry more widely? Yes, Alex, it, yeah, it's it's certainly over the last year or two has been quite lively. Um, look, having started the company in 2011, 
has been a very prolonged period of, from a market sense, actually dormant for such a long time. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you feel like you, you discovered, you know, the world's best project in one of the world's worst markets? And from my perspective and, and also the team's perspective at, at NextGen, that was okay with us because it, it actually allowed us to get on with developing the project to the stage that we have without being distracted with all the market you know, noise that happens in a, in a rising uranium price. Even when we discovered this back in 2011 and started the company, I was always been such a strong advocate for nuclear energy worldwide and and I knew that the world was devoid of any real A-grade uranium mining projects and look, the home of them is in Saskatchewan and we went to another part of the, the base and that they hadn't really been explored and people said, well, why are you going out there? It's not where all the producing mines are and we took the simple view that why is the geology any different and actually we proved that the geology was way better in terms of what we discovered. And so, yeah, that uh, we mentioned earlier, it's been 10 years since discovery almost. And in that time, up until the, really the last two years, the uranium market has been pretty, pretty quiet. But that reflected our confidence that this market was already always coming. And we have read the market correctly with respect to, you know, demand is increasing and yet mine supply is the most fragile it's ever been. And the costs of producing from those current mines are going up substantially. And so we've seen the result of that the last uh, six months in particular with the uranium price going from 100 to where it is today at 101. I saw it just got quoted. And so that's a, a rapid rise over the last six months. But this has been building since 2011. And you just can't turn on mine supply overnight. As I alluded to, we've got one of the simplest projects technically on the planet, and yet it's still going to be a 15-year process from discovery through to actual production. And we weren't the only ones to recognise it. I think like some of those uranium fund holders, uh, such as Yellowcake in in the UK, um, the Sprott Uranium Trust in North America, they saw Western world's leading producers buying spot pounds on market because it was cheaper than those mines could produce it themselves. And when do you ever see that in a, a commodity, let alone an energy commodity? And so they just recognised the trade and started buying, and they have also been correct. Now, whilst we're not patting ourselves on the back or, or anything, we have been correct, and we're very excited, having developed this project over that time, to have it ready to go into this next commodity upcycle that we're seeing in uranium. And the world mine supply can't turn on overnight and and I think the fundamentals are now locked in for uranium for probably a longer period than when they weren't. Uh, I mentioned earlier 2011 to, to 2024, it's a long time and this has been building for that time. I don't think the world's production can materially respond in a net supply sense for at least a decade and you know, just our project, which will be the world's largest at about 25% of the world's mine supply, we are just replacing mine supply that is expected to come off between now and when we're in production. 30 million pounds is what we're, the, our feasibility engineering study has scheduled, and that's coming from a very tiny mine. Like We're moving ore of about one double-decker bus, one and a half double-decker buses a day 
That's the, to give you a sense of the ore volume, that's all our mine's doing. And yet that's a reflection of the incredible grade. Now, on 2023 mine supply numbers, uh, the 135 million pounds the numbers come in at, that's about 30% of the world's total supplied, mine supplied, but Western world is probably going to be around 50% of the Western world's mine supply and coming from a premier jurisdiction in Saskatchewan, Canada. And how long a supply do you think they'll be? As per the feasibility study, which only takes into account the measured and indicated resources, that's 10.7 years. Now we have another 80 million pounds in an inferred resource, and now it's inferred just through the drill density is at 50 metre spacing. To get it into the measured and indicated, you need to bring that down to 15 to 25 metres. Now that ore will convert as has the balance of the deposit. And then we also have a number of other mineralisation zones in and around Arrow, and particularly under Arrow where we've we've hit more mineralisation but yet to define it because it's, it's under Arrow and it's deep. We have permitted for an initial 24-year mine life. And that permit uh, timeline reflects our confidence in the deposit just in and around Arrow. We discovered it with the first drill hole within a four and a half kilometre radius. We obviously knew what we were doing, no doubt about that. But did we find the only mother load in the area? I don't think so. We, we know we have more mineralisation as well. And so we've just recently kicked off our 2024 exploration program where we are looking for new Arrow type zones within an economic distance of the Arrow deposit. So all of that signifies our approach to getting a a 24-year initial mine licence. Things look even more feasible given the price rises since your feasibility study. Does that encourage you to do more exploration or is this something you would have been doing anyway? It certainly has played a part of it. I I think there's going to be a market there to produce more than £30 million per annum, particularly in the 2030 decade for the reasons I mentioned earlier. So yes, that has fed into it, Alex, but uh, also from a practical point of view, with all the work we've been doing on the provincial environmental assessment approval, the federal one, it's now at a stage where we've done everything we can. It also freed up the exploration team in 2023 to get back out exploring again. We will learn a lot from that program in 2023 and it's helped to refine the targets in, in 2024. So answer to your question, yes, it is an incredibly feasible project. Even at $50 a pound, this is one of the best economically returning projects in resources full stop. At $100 a pound, it's extraordinary. The free cash flow annually once in production will take us into the top 10 mining companies worldwide. And that's also coming from a project that is based in Saskatchewan, a premier sovereign location and we'll be generating at 30 million pounds per annum. That's the equivalent of powering 46 million homes in the US, or taking the the equivalent of 70 million vehicles of CO2 equivalent off the road every year. So it's a powerful project on the economic front, but also the environmental front as well. But uh, yeah, with with the price of uranium, historically, it reached $136.50 in 2008, I personally believe that the price is going to go significantly higher. That price adjusted 136 with inflation is effectively $203 a pound in uh, today's terms. Now, 
I also, the top five mines that were in production back in 2008 all had healthy lives ahead of them. None of them are in production today. Uh, yeah, MacArthur River is about to go into production, but they closed it down due to cost and the market conditions in 2017. So that one coming back online, one out of the five uh, would be in operation, but uh, it doesn't have its reserve life that it once did. So I think the outlook for high uranium prices is um, incredibly strong. The geopolitics over the last two years must have played a part in who your customers are going to be and, I guess, growing demand. Yeah, that's right, Alex, and, and that's an aspect which doesn't get the focus that it, it really should, given the practicality of the matter. Yeah, the world's splitting in terms of um, the sources of uranium, and last year the, the US imported 44% of their nuclear fuel from Russia or Russian-influenced countries that produce uranium, and, and they consume about 50 million pounds per annum produce less than one. So they're very heavily dependent on imports for nuclear fuel as we speak. We did experience as a company the demand for our ore going forward, the interest from utilities in the US, Europe, Japan, uh, other parts of Asia increased substantially with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. I also think that's a function that it's been well documented that the US is is looking to embargo the importation of nuclear fuel into the US, but more so than just the legislation around it from the US government. Shareholders of the big power utilities in the US have spoken up and said, well, you shouldn't be procuring your fuel supply from, from Russia, given their motivations to invade Ukraine. So I, I think from an ESG perspective, we're becoming even more preferable with respect to a safe, reliable and socially acceptable source of supply given the environmental benignness of our mind but also the location as well. On a wider note on nuclear energy in general, how do you see the outlook? Well, having been in the sector since 2002 and having experienced it all, I'm just really pleased you know, back in 2018, 2019, the European Union came out and officially designated nuclear as clean, green and safe relative to any base load carbon emitting form of energy. You saw the UK government really invest heavily in the development of their nuclear program. The US government have also done it with the Inflation Reduction Act where, and so I think it just reflects that people have, who are sensible about energy policy has recognised that the merits of nuclear are now based on the scientific fact as opposed to some of the false political ideologies that have been generated around nuclear energy. Having been, lived in Australia, look, I think Australia is one of the toughest opinion markets in the world around nuclear energy and, well, we're, we're going to take delivery of nuclear-powered submarines through ACUS. And I think you are going to see a small mod reactor developed in Australia probably in that 2030 decade because the realisation around sensible energy policy, if you want carbon-free base load power, it has to be nuclear energy. There's no doubt about it. And so I think the discussion, it's been pleasing to see that worldwide there's been a real practical perspective on energy policy and the recognition of nuclear as opposed to some of those false political ideologies that were developed in the 60s and 70s. And I think Oliver Stone's movie, Nuclear Now, 
is a fantastic 90-minute documentary which provides a, a history around nuclear energy and its merits moving forward to have a carbon-free or net zero carbon footprint of, of world energy. And, and look, energy is the number one factor on the planet that influences the average standard of living. And so we have to get it right. And as NextGen, everyone who's at NextGen currently and, and who joins our company is dedicated and, and committed to ensuring that this project is done very, very well because the global consequence of our project is is very material. Would you say you've seen a change of mood on nuclear in Australia? Yeah, to- totally. Uh, last public opinion poll I um, reviewed had more than half of the population support nuclear energy to be uh, developed in, in Australia. And I think, look, uh, even J- Japan, yeah, another tough public opinion market, they're restarting their reactors. Look, we're in negotiation with Japanese utilities for offtake um, as we speak. They had an earthquake uh, a month ago, a, a really good test. And so I think that reflects the scientific appreciation of nuclear as opposed to, as I said, some of those false, false ideologies that were generated in the 60s and 70s. How much of your proposed production have you already got customers for? So we're, we're currently fully levered to future prices. We have not locked in any pounds of production yet, and that's been a process of once we have visibility on the precise timing of production with the federal approval, we will then start entering into those contracts. But that dialogue with utilities in the US, Europe, Asia, the Middle East as well, so like the UAE, Saudi Arabia have a very large domestic a nuclear program they're looking to deploy. We've been in dialogue for primarily the last three years with those utilities. We have a very well-experienced uranium marketing gentleman. Yeah, the frequency of those discussions have um, elevated even in the last three months. So I think there's getting some real recognition of the actual state of mine supply and, and how it looks going forward and given the nature of our project, it's a priority for a lot of utilities. That's really interesting stuff. Is there anything in the year ahead or the next few months that we should be expecting or looking out for? Yeah, we'll have an update shortly around the federal permitting process, like the the timing. As I said, we we have done everything we possibly can with respect to that federal permit where there's been letters sent to the federal government in Canada demanding from the Indigenous communities in our project area demanding immediate approval of the project. We would Im- immediately go into commercial construction of the project. We know what we're building. We're ready to build. We've got the team, project sites, construction ready. We will be concluding some offtake arrangements during 2024 with utilities. We'll be adding to the team as we go along as well. Like We're getting very specific with respect to the additional roles that we're bringing in internally into the project as we move towards production and there's a lot going on at our company and that's all within a an overlay of a, a rising uranium market so i mentioned earlier given that the the market has gone from 50 to 101 dollars our approach doesn't change though and it's been exactly the same when the market wasn't alive we focus on the day-to-day and getting the process completely right to ensure that the results as good as it can be. And so, yeah, we're pleased to see the market 
doing what it's doing, it doesn't change our approach from one day to the next. Sounds like exciting times ahead. It is, and for everyone at the at the company who have been there alongside me uh, over that time, and it's, it's funny, people think, oh, you're getting tired. I'm more energised than ever, and, and so is the team, and, and we're very, very proud about what we've done and the manner in which we've done it. You've got a team at NextGen that I wouldn't call it a cult, but it's very it's it's an incredibly dedicated group of people constantly pushing each other and constantly looking at things honestly in order to how can we do it better. Look, I've got to say the the approach is uh, is one of the aspects I'm incredibly proud of, irrespective of the nature of the project. It's the the approach from the team which I've been uh, I'm very I'm incredibly proud of. It's been great speaking to you, Lee. Thanks again for your time and joining Claire and I. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Claire. It's been great to speak with you both and look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Well, that's about all we have time for. Don't forget to check out our show notes for links to further information about the topics covered, as well as a link to sign up to our daily and weekly email newsletters. And do feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on the next edition of the World Nuclear News. Nuclear News.